This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. The Buddha said, You friends should contemplate knowing how to be satisfied if you wish to be liberated from suffering. The Dharma of knowing how to be satisfied is the realm of riches, comfort, peace, and tranquility. Those who know how to be satisfied are happy and comfortable even when sleeping on the ground. Those who do not know how to be satisfied are not satisfied even when dwelling in a heavenly palace. Those who do not know how to be satisfied are poor even though they are wealthy, while those who know how to be satisfied are wealthy even though they have little. Those who do not know how to be satisfied and are always tempted by the five desires are consoled by those who know how to be satisfied. This is called knowing how to be satisfied. This is the second of the eight awarenesses that the Buddha taught uh, right before his death. This was his last teaching, the eight awarenesses of an an enlightened being. And the first is having few desires. And when I first read these, I I thought that maybe these two were were the same thing. But I think there's a a subtle difference. You know, the, the first, having few desires really refers to those things that we don't yet have and want. And the, the, the longing, the hunger, the desire that arises as a result. It's saying have few wants and you will suffer less. The second deals with a sense of satisfaction of what we already have. In the sense it's saying, you know, we already have everything that we need. We don't need more. Can you see that? And so these two form a very uh, live dynamic between hunger and satiety, between reaching for what is not and resting in what is. And I I was saying in my last talk, you know, how powerful desire is And maybe that is why the Buddha chose to to break it down, to speak about it in in such detail. Because it is such a powerful force. The very act of wanting is its own fuel. You could say the desire for desire itself. And about a little over a month ago, Tenke, my partner, and I went to Macy's in the city. And, you know, there's a place where everything shines and glitters and everything entices and, and promises. And it's, it's both exciting and terrible. And I was thinking, if you, if you want to feel bad about yourself, you should just go shopping <laughs> or go to see your family. Uh, although that's not all families, I, I'm sure. Um, 
but there's this, you know, there's this, uh, and because I had been thinking about these these talks, I was thinking about this um, as I was there, and um, you know, there's this promise, certainly of of all these things. Some of them, you know, quite nice. This this promise that um, having them, I will look better, I will feel better about myself. And at the same time, there's this kind of deep sense of depression that right now I don't feel that. And you, you look in the mirror and, and nothing feels quite right. And so it's a very, it's a very odd um, kind of limbo. And, and I was thinking, you know, that's the not-so-nice thing about marketing. It, it plays into our insecurity. And Tenke needed to, to get lipstick. And so I was standing right outside the little corner, the Bobby Brown corner. And uh, I, I inadvertently was standing right on the path between the attendant and where people had to come in. And um, so she had to pass by me to, to greet other customers. And uh, she just looked right through me. It was as if I wasn't even there, and I, and I could tell. She probably just took one look at me. I thought, well, she's hopeless, so <laughs> let me not, not even bother. Um, and afterwards, I regretted not going up to her myself and saying, you know, will you show me some lipsticks? Just uh, upturn her, her image <laughs> her image of me. Um, but in that moment, I actually did feel invisible. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, it's not a, it's not a mystery how this this sense, a deep sense of dissatisfaction is formed and confirmed in us. Because even if you think, even if you say to yourself, as I have, you know, I don't really care about how I look or how other people perceive me, there's all these images, right, around us, all these messages in our culture that are saying, actually, that is quite important, you should care. You should care. As a woman, especially, you should care about how you look because it is so deeply tied into your sense of worth. And it reminded me of reading uh, Bill Bryson when he's talking about uh, Watson and Crick, you know, discovering the double helix. And Watson wrote a book about it uh, after they were awarded the Nobel Prize. And the only mention that he makes of Rosalind Franklin, whom I had never even heard of until that moment, because she, she was a colleague of theirs, and she was responsible for the photograph that, that led to the development of the double, double helix. She died a few years before, and so she, wasn't, she didn't share the price with them. There was another um, man, Walsh, Walsh, I believe, who, or Wilkins, who did, um, but anyway, the only mention that Watson makes of her is that she was uncooperative and almost willfully unsexy. And he, uh, he grants that she actually was not unattractive, but that she really didn't try. She didn't even wear lipstick. And, you know, so that's, that's one image now that we have of her by one of her closest colleagues. And, you know, same is true, you know, in politics, nobody ever discusses a male politician's wardrobe or hairdo. Well, that's not true. <laughs> I take that back. <laughs> but 
that's more, that's more the exception, the exception than the rule. Um, and you know, and if you're a man, it's not like you're, you're off the hook. If you're a man growing up in, in this culture, you have learned that uh, probably that showing emotion is uh, not accepted, that is weak. It's weak to show emotion. It's good to have it because everyone likes a sensitive guy, but not to show it. And so when you do feel it, which of course will happen, what do you do? You either suppress it and then uh, find some way or, or some way finds you for it to come out, usually anger, or you just you, you get angry right from, from the get-go. Or you feel, or, or you um, cut off a part of yourself. And of course, what ends up happening, somehow you feel wrong. So how are we to feel satisfied, truly and deeply satisfied? Not just about what we have or lack materially, but about ourselves. You know, the way we look, sure, the way we speak, the way we think, you know, who we are. So what is the right amount of anything? Brains and brawn, courage and sensitivity. What's the right amount for me? And Maizumi Roshi, who, who did a commentary on, on these eight awarenesses, speaks of Oriyoki. And he says uh, that O means response. Ryo is amount and ki is container. So Oriyoki is the container which holds the right amount to respond to the need. And he says we ourselves are Oriyoki. We are the container which holds the right amount to respond to the need. So as Master Dogen says, when the need is large, we respond largely. When the need is small, we meet it in a small way. And Oriyoki was, um, has been a profound, profound practice for me. I could quite literally say that it changed me. <coughs> because probably like 9 or 9.5 out of 10 women, you know, I too grew up um, obsessed, really, I think that would be the right word, obsessed about uh, my weight. So there was um, a couple of decades, uh, at least maybe one decade, one and a half decades, where I was, I was constantly worrying about how I looked and what I ate and um, exercising constantly. And I came here... And, and I couldn't quite yet tell at the time that really what was happening underneath was I was deeply, deeply dissatisfied and yearning and hungry to feel okay, just to feel fundamentally okay, because I didn't. So I came here and I started practicing, and I could, you know, a, a little better uh, see that it wasn't really just about food and it wasn't really just about my weight but there was still such a such an energy such a power to it and I remember so clearly one afternoon going up to my cabin and feeling desperate desperate um, 
I remember thinking, you know, what would I think of? How would I use my mind if I wasn't constantly thinking about this? And the feeling was so excruciating that I quite literally wanted to just bash my head against the wall. I was, I was that desperate. And then sometime after that, I was, um, it was Sashin and it was Orioki. And I was standing back in the, in the hallway. I was a server. And, um, and I looked up and I was watching um, my teacher eat. And I remember thinking, I can do that. I can do Orioki with every meal. That is something that I actually can do. I mean, I've been doing it, but that is basically what I'm going to do. And I had been having a lot of um, stomach problems at the time. I'd seen a bunch of doctors. I went downstairs. I threw away the medication they had given me, and I never took it again. And I just started a very deliberate, very um, careful uh, study of want, of hunger, of what was actually going on in my body and mind. And I trained myself you know, to do orioki with, with every meal to, to actually find out what was the right amount for me. And that's when I began to, to actually see and sense that pervading sense that I carried with me all the time, that I was, that there was something wrong, that there was something flawed about me. And I, of course, understood that that was a big part of what had brought me to practice, but I couldn't have uh, explained it to someone. And so you could say from, from that moment on, I became an Oriokian, uh, really studying what was the right amount, certainly of food, but of energy, of work and rest. I continue, I can constantly um, study that right amount of solitude, of company. But with food specifically, I also remember very clearly the day that I was standing right by the bread table. And I thought to myself, I have not thought about food, I don't remember since when. And it was probably about two years to the time that I had first begun doing this. And... uh, I felt what the Buddha actually meant by, by the word liberation. It was, it, was, um, <laughs> it was liberating. And so, you know, if you're, if you're somewhat new to Oriyoki and you are worried about the mechanics of it and, you know, getting the sequence right and the knot, uh, get closer. You know, don't miss the... the well, the incredible teachings of, of this ceremony, of this liturgy, what it can show you about you. And so what is the right amount? What is the right amount of practice in order to see what the right amount is? You know, in a, in a session, for example, you know, how much do you sit? And with what kind of effort? Is there such a thing as too much sitting? I think, I think there is, actually. What kind of effort is uh, needed to realize yourself, to realize this mind, 
this natural, pure, bright mind? How do you know when to push yourself and when to relax? When to try harder and when to stop trying? When is satisfaction complacency and when is it fulfillment? How do you know the difference between the two? And in the same, in the same book, uh, Maizumi Roshi's book, um, Tetsugen Roshi, who was uh, Dada Roshi's Dharma brother and um, Maizumi Roshi's successor, does a, a question and answer uh, session after each of these um, talks that Maizumi Roshi gave on the awarenesses. And he has a very nice exchange with someone about work. He's, he's asking, seemed like the person was a, a crew leader, and so he's asking them, you know, how do you know when it's, when it's too much? How do you know when you need to stop? And the student said, well, you know, you have to know yourself. You can't really baby other people. You, know, you can't really know, so you have to take care of yourself. And Tetsugen says, you know, it worries me that, that, you, that you speak of it this way. Because it's like you're saying, you know, all these people that are working with me or for me, when really you should say, it's me working. He says, you can't do more than yourself, which includes all the people involved. All the people involved are me. They are me working. Do you see that? He's basically saying, enlarge the container. Don't even enlarge it, it's already larger. See that the container is that large. Take all of it into account. If I actually knew that I am the whole universe, what would be missing? What reason would there be to not be satisfied? This is the true satisfaction, knowing our nature. Karagiri Roshi said that in the relative, we're always responsible. And in the absolute, we're always forgiven. We could also think of it in terms of, you know, in the relative, we are always developing. There is always more to see. There's more to realize, more to embody and manifest. In the absolute, there's nothing to develop at all. And so in the relative, we do work with our wants and needs, with our insecurity and confidence. We tune our bodies and minds in order, so, in order that we may let go of those habitual impulses, that, that reaching, that reaching, that fear or, or um, longing that makes us reach for something that is outside ourselves something that will improve me. Or at the very least, you know, take, take the edge of that unease, of that discomfort. In the absolute, we know there is nothing to do because we are the very nature of completeness. And so when these five desires arise, we understand them to be a kind of worldly joy, the Buddha calls it. And so these five desires are the five sense desires. And in a different sutra, he says, what is worldly joy? 
These are these five cords of sense desire, forms cognizable by the eye that are wished for and desired, agreeable and endearing associated with sense desire, sounds cognizable by the ear, odors, odors cognizable by the nose, flavors cognizable by the tongue, tangibles cognizable by the body. It is the joy that arises dependent on these five cords of sense desire, which is called worldly joy. There's the Niramisa Sutta, which is called unworldly. And so there is joy in desire, and we shouldn't ignore that. But it's not the only thing that is present. You know, a big part of, of studying my my compulsion, my obsession with, with food, was recognizing the moment in which putting another cookie in my mouth was no longer pleasurable. And, you know, my real threshold now, it seems, is pretty low. You know, I'll take one, and that's, the first one is delicious. And the second one isn't really. The second one is forced. And I, and I recognize that now. You know, the second one is my attempt to prolong the, pressure, the pleasure. And the actual experience is one of some pleasure, because there's still the, the taste, mixed with pain. So it doesn't actually work. Practice uh, spoils your excess. And I think it's, it's one way to work with, with addictive behaviors. It's not by itself. I don't think it's enough. But, but it's to, to pay close attention and to pay, pay broad attention. Because there's so much happening in our bodies that mostly we just ignore. And when we stop ignoring, we get a fuller picture of the suffering that accompanies certain kinds of pleasure. So it's not eating uh, only one cookie for the sake of discipline. It's not even restraint. It's eating one cookie because you realize that's all you want. It's a big difference. There's no, in that sense, there's no, there's no effort involved. There's certainly no sacrifice. Now, otherworldly joy, the Buddha said, arises out of uh, entering into and dwelling in the jhanas, the deep states of meditation. It arises out of seclusion, of a mind that is concentrated and unified, of directed thought and examination. It arises out of equanimity. But then he says, even greater joy is when a taint-free practitioner looks upon their mind that is freed of greed, freed of hatred, freed of delusion, and then there arises joy. This is called a still greater, unworldly joy. This is the joy of being freed of the three poisons, which is a kind of joy of joy itself. Lasting joy perfect or transcendent joy, joy based on wisdom, based on harmony. And at the same time, there is a a kind of dissatisfaction that is skillful, that is helpful. The dissatisfaction of knowing no matter how much you do realize 
that there is more. There's always more, which is more like aspiration, a kind of longing, of reaching, but it's not, um, it's not unsettled, it's not grasping. It's a calm knowing, since I am, in fact, the whole universe, how could I possibly know all there is to know? And so in this sense, we can never be satisfied because our fundamental capacity is limitless. Which perhaps is another way of saying that knowing how to be satisfied, truly satisfied, is knowing how to live with the satisfaction. But the right kind. It is, as Master Seng Sun said, to, to live without anxiety about non-perfection. Speaking to myself here as much as I am to you. Actually, is to have no anxiety about having anxiety about non-perfection. Anxiety, like any other thought, any other feeling, any other dharma, is conditioned. Which means its nature is of the three signs of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and insubstantiality, no self. And yet, when we understand impermanence and we understand no self, then that suffering, that unsatisfactoriness, changes. So if it's a feeling of anxiety, a feeling of shame, a feeling of anger, of doubt... Can I recognize in that moment that it is ever-changing and that it is empty of inherent existence? I am feeling it, and that needs to be recognized too. It needs to be felt and acknowledged. But what if I just let it be when it is and let it pass when it passes? Where can the dust alight then? There's those uh, two poems by uh, the sixth ancestor and Shen Xu. Uh, The the fifth ancestor, as he's getting ready to transmit the Dharma, he says to to his monks, I'm sure many of you know the story, write write me a poem that shows your understanding. And so the head monk writes a poem that says, the body is a Bodhi tree, the mind a standing mirror bright. At all times, polish it diligently and do not, do not let the dust collect. And Hui Nung, who's illiterate, has somebody else read it to him and writes his response. Bodhi is originally without any tree. The bright mirror is not a stand. Originally, there's not a single thing. Where can the dust alight? there's a, a, a practice of brushing away the dust so we can see clearly. And there is a practice of realizing there's no place for the dust to fall. And yet, as I, as I said, you know, what is true for sure is that anything that we haven't acknowledged will keep us tethered. 
Buddha spoke of, um, you know, the different ways of, of dealing with thoughts, especially unskillful or unwholesome thoughts. Um, you know, you replace them with a, with a skillful one, you forget it, you basically don't feed it. You know, and as, as, as things aren't working, one of the things that you do is you, you stabilize the mental formation, he called it. You trace that thought back to its source. And the, the example that he gives is of a person walking fast, asking himself or herself, why am I walking fast? What if I walk slowly? Walking slowly, why don't I stand? Why don't I sit? Why don't I lie down? And, you know, even if you, if you imagine that, what's, what's happening is, is the body is becoming more settled. But it's, it's the same is true if you're dealing with a thought. What is the root of my anger? For example, what is before it? Shame. Why? Because really what I'm feeling is sadness. Why? Because I'm lonely, but I'm not supposed to feel that. I'm not supposed to say that. I don't want to admit it. And not admitting it, it keeps me walking fast. It keeps me running and kicking and knocking things all over the place, which makes me feel even worse. And on it goes. So, and I, I often think about it as, as working on these two levels, the relative and the absolute, and the relative understanding, understanding what it is that I need to see and acknowledge and clarify. And at the same time, um, diligently, consistently, and ever more clearly realizing that fundamentally, I am empty, and this feeling is empty. It has no inherent existence. Because that's really where the true liberation is, where the lasting liberation is. Maybe knowing how to be satisfied is also you know, not being shy or embarrassed about our happiness. Because in our, in our news, our art, just our, our common discourse, you know, despair has a way of, of gathering large audiences. And, you know, in general, unhappy people tend to be more uh, communicative, <laughs> sometimes enthusiastically so. And in ourselves, right? We're so, so willing to, to uh, express what we are dissatisfied about. Not so much when we are happy and joyful. And I don't know if it's because we, we view this happiness, and, and, and by happiness I mean fulfillment, contentment, maybe because we view it with suspicion, or maybe because you know, looking for it in the wrong places, it seems maybe it doesn't quite exist. And it certainly seems very fleeting, if I am basing my happiness on, on the way I look and what I have or what you think of me, I'm going to have to stay pretty nimble to stay happy. So it's not as... Um, that fulfillment is not as, as entertaining. You know, it's not as dramatic
but the the um, I think it was in a, in a book by Gunaratana. I read that um, some years ago now. Dan Rather um, interviewed interviewed a man who whose house uh, abutted a highway, and every morning during rush hour, the man would come out on his porch and he would wave at the cars and say, good morning, have a good day. And every afternoon, rush hour, at the end of the day, he would say, he would wave at the cars and say, good afternoon, have a safe drive home. And I guess somebody figured out what he was doing and told Dan Rather about it. And so he went and interviewed him. And he said, you know, nobody can hear you. (laughs) Why are you doing this? (laughs) And the man said, Every morning, I wish them a good day. And every afternoon, I wish them a safe drive home. I'm just doing it from my heart. I don't need anything else. An undercover bodhisattva. And, you know, we have no way of knowing, of course, what he was like day to day, what it was like to live with him. (laughs) But I doubt that he was particularly angry or, or dissatisfied. And... And yet, did his, did his loving kindness, because really I think that's what that was, radiating you know, in, in all directions, uh, did that come first, his loving kindness, or that, that ease with himself? Does it matter? Last weekend, in the, during the retreat, I was telling people that... Um, Annie Dillard has a quote that says, be careful what you read because that's what you'll know. And I say, you know, be careful what you think because that's who you'll be. The three worlds are nothing but mind. And the thing is, there is no time or place where this is not true. There's no world apart from this mind, this mind. That is why it's so important to guard and protect it, like a mother protects her child. And I was saying how all these innocuous thoughts, I don't think there is such a thing. And sometimes it's hard to catch them. I, certainly I speak for myself. Sometimes, you know, I don't, I don't realize what I'm creating until I'm deep in it. But that is part of the study And this is Shantideva. All endeavors are for the sake of satisfaction, which is difficult to obtain even by means of wealth. So I will enjoy the pleasure of satisfaction and good qualities diligently accomplished by others. This is sympathetic joy. Definitely the most difficult, yet the most potent of medicines for, for our dissatisfaction in a moment of of anger, in a moment of discontent, to bring someone else to mind and to rejoice in their virtue, in their well-being. It's an unfailing antidote. the, The perfect bomb neutralizer. Everything just falls apart. You know, next time, next time you 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 are angry or you feel judgmental, try it. Wish someone well, and then keep doing it. Because part of you will resist it. Part of you won't want to do it. Part of you will want to stay angry. (laughs) 
but that, that um, turning towards what is skillful, what is affirming. You know, at a certain point, you, you can't hold both. You can't hold both the anger and the loving kindness or the joy. And so we can see others as others, as beings competing you know, for the same resources that we want and need. Or we can see them as the very means to our liberation. That's what, what Shantideva says. One should always look straight at sentient beings as if drinking them in with the eyes, thinking, relying on them alone, I shall attain Buddhahood. Relying on you alone, I will attain Buddhahood. Relying on me, you will attain Buddhahood. And this is the same as saying relying on me alone, you know, on all the parts of me, the wanted and unwanted, the known and the hidden, the accepted and the denied. All of them are the gate to my liberation, your liberation. And then we do end up being the ones who console those who don't yet know how to be satisfied. Not by taking care of them, not by babying them, certainly, simply by being deeply satisfied ourselves. Like this this, uh, man, offering ourselves for the sake of offering. That's why we can't leave anything or anyone out. Not my desire, not my dissatisfaction, not my greed, not my anger, not my ignorance. Not the people who trouble me, the ones who annoy me, the ones who threaten me. And that's the wonderful news. We don't need to be someone else to be liberated. We don't need to travel to some other unworldly, ideal world. But that's not how the Buddha meant it. It's all right here before our eyes. Perfectly visible, completely present, and utterly without flaw. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.